From the European Broadcasting Union in Geneva, I'm Emilio San Pedro, and this is the Eurovision News Podcast. In this two-part series, we discuss the efforts to evacuate endangered journalists from Afghanistan and what appears to be a bleak future for the free press there. Our commitment with the Afghan people is a commitment with them in all circumstances. <laughs> to gain a broad perspective, members of our news team speak with a variety of guests who've been working in Afghanistan or are directly involved with the struggle. First, my colleague Masa Aminolahi Zahedi speaks with Shabir Ahmadi, the former deputy head of Tolo News, Afghanistan's largest news channel, to hear his personal experience. Welcome, Masa. Thanks, Emilio. The story of Shabir is heartbreaking and it's just one example of how lives turned upside down in a matter of days after the Taliban took over Kabul and toppled the Afghan government. Shabir is a young, talented journalist who, due to circumstances, had to leave everything behind. His job, friends, the country he loved, in exchange for safety in another country. He's not living in the most convenient circumstances at the moment. When we were talking, there was quite a lot of background noise that you'll notice as well. And that's because he's living with three other families and 11 children in temporary housing in southern Spain. His ordeal is still ongoing. And when narrating his story, I felt that at some points he was reliving those unbelievably difficult moments. Let's hear from him. Hello, Shabir. Welcome. Thank you for taking the time and sharing your story with us. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. Before the Taliban came to Kabul and before we knew that we lost our country to the Taliban, I was a journalist at uh, Tolo News. We were thinking about making our, our lives better for our families, for ourselves and uh, doing something for our country. We never thought that we will lose our country to the Taliban again. So with their coming to Kabul, our lives changed a lot. All that we were busy making for our country in the last two decades uh, is being destroyed. It's very hard to be in this situation, yeah. I can imagine as outsiders that we were following the news of the country and, you know, the advance of the Taliban. Still, we were caught off guard when they took over Kabul in a, in a matter of hours, basically. Yeah. Uh, they entered the city and the whole thing was over once uh, Ashraf Ghani uh, left the country. And it was absolutely shocking to, to witness that. But I was wondering, was it the same for you as well, for people who were living inside Afghanistan, especially for journalists like yourself? Of course, it was shocking. Finally, we knew that the Taliban will come because we were following the news every day. We were making the news every day. We knew that the Taliban will come, but we didn't know that they will come in a couple of hours. We didn't know that Kabul will fall uh, and uh, several days uh, to the Taliban and the uh, security forces will vanish in a day and the president will uh, leave the country actually will flee the country but we didn't know this uh, that they will come this way several days before the Taliban came uh, 
intelligence report said that Kabul will last three months, and then they said that Kabul will last one month, and then they said that Kabul will uh, last uh, three days. So at the end, we saw that it didn't last even one day. Uh, so the day that the Taliban entered Kabul, I was at, at the office. There were reports that security forces are abandoning their post, uh, posts and also they are abandoning their jobs. And so it was very bad. We were scared and in fear. So I sent uh, female journalists to their homes. Actually, some of them didn't want to go home. They told us that uh, anything that happens to you happens to us. Also, the Taliban had in a statement, they said that they will not enter Kabul uh, because the security of Kabul is the responsibility of security forces of the government. And the Minister of Interior and Minister of Defense, actually they were caretakers of the ministries, they uh, had video statements, they said that uh, security forces will remain in Kabul and the security uh, is uh, their responsibility. But in a couple of hours, uh, all of security forces vanished. Back to the day that that the Taliban entered the the city, I want to hear more of your personal story. What happened once the shock settled in and you realized, okay, they are inside the city? Did you leave the office? What were the scenes that you saw and what was the next thing that you did? There was a sense of fear, as you know, and some of our colleagues uh, went to their homes. But actually, I I stayed at the office uh, that night. It was a sense of fear and uncertainty. We didn't know what will happen. In a couple of hours, in a minute, we didn't know what will happen. And then there was, uh, there were uh, several sounds of uh, explosions uh, that feared us. But uh, after maybe half an hour, we knew that it was expl- uh, there were explosions inside uh, the U.S. embassy in Kabul. Uh, I think uh, uncertainty is the most big uh, characteristic of uh, that situation. Uh, we felt lost. What happened next? I was uh, at the airport uh, to leave the country. But before that, uh, uh, from the day that the Taliban came to Kabul, uh, I was uh, seeing uh, the pictures from the airport. We were covering at Tolo News. We were covering the situation of the airport. So uh, when I saw the pictures, I told myself that I will never leave the country like this. I will never try to leave my country like this but it happened i told the family to pack and then we went to the airport what did you pack in those few hours that you had and how was the journey from home to the airport and obviously entering the airport to the area that you could board actually we didn't pack anything so we just came with our clothes that we had we couldn't uh, pack anything, even our laptops uh, remain in Kabul because we were notified uh, at noon that uh, we should go to the airport at 3 o'clock. And uh, we didn't know that we will be waiting at the airport one day at the gate, one night at the gate and uh, one day and night inside the airport. If we knew that, maybe we could do something, we could uh, pack uh, more. We, we, we brought nothing. Uh, so it's very hard. I'm disappointed because uh, I, I could make better arrangements for this, but uh, we had no time. There were thousands of people trying to enter the airport 
many of them uh, didn't have uh, proper documents, not passports, not visas uh, to uh, go to the Europe and the West. But they were trying uh, to go because they were disappointed with the situation of the country. It was very hard to see that situation and to see that uh, the youth of your country are fleeing like this. It was one of the worst experiences I have had in my life. So uh, we reached to the gate. It's called Abbey Gate. And uh, we saw that we don't have any choice other than to wait until we are able to enter the airport. It was very hard there because thousands of people, male and female, were there. But uh, finally we found a place and uh, that we could um, actually make uh, the women in our family make uh, feel safe. It was uh, beside a stream. Uh, the stream is uh, between the people, a very narrow pathway for the people and uh, the gate of the airport. So we were waiting there all the night, uh, not sleep for a minute even. At five o'clock in the morning, uh, finally the Spanish soldiers came uh, and there was a, a sign of uh, hope inside our hearts. Uh, that's something I never want to experience again and I n never want uh, anyone to experience that uh, situation. It was hard to go from Kabul, but we were happy to be safe. There was a U.S. report suggesting that Kabul will fall within 90 days. They thought Kabul has three months before Taliban took over the city. What would you do differently if, if you still had those three months in terms of your job or your life? Maybe I, maybe I did more work in my office so I can be of service to my people. Because as a journalist, I always uh, have uh, thought that people are who that I work for, so I can do something for my country. Maybe we, can, uh, we could talk to the Taliban, uh, so when they came, our broadcasting was not affected, uh, but all of it came as a shock. Do you feel there's a difference in the coverage from Tolu News? Because some people are suggesting Tolu News is experiencing some sort of self-censorship, some sort of pro-Taliban narrative so that they can, they can survive in this climate. Um, do you agree with that? Do you feel like the coverage has changed? Self-censorship is uh, something you do in Afghanistan when you are a journalist and when for 20 years you have uh, spoken against the Taliban and uh, you have uh, spoken in support of new values that Afghanistan has got but the Taliban are against it. Uh, I think uh, the, the broadcasting is affected uh, but uh, I cannot say it is uh, pro-Taliban, it's because of the situation. You cannot uh, trust the word of the Taliban and their actions. Uh, but maybe there are some changes. Uh, they are trying to survive in a very difficult situation and they are trying to get better uh, and get normal in this situation. They can have uh, uh, any uh, problem with the broadcasting, but you should be there to judge them, uh, really. That's true. What are your plans now for your future? I want to continue as a journalist and uh, 
I want to do something for my country. Uh, so I plan to write more because I have worked uh, in TV for such a long time, for more than a decade. And now I'm, I think it's, uh, it's time for me to uh, write something and uh, also uh, continue my studies and also spend some time uh, with the family actually i want my family to be happy although we miss our country we miss our relatives and friends but i want to i want our lives to change and uh, do something big uh, for afghanistan also and for ourselves too and wh- how do you see the future of the free press in today's afghanistan If the situation continues like this, if uh, the Taliban are the only ones in the government, uh, I see a dark uh, future for freedom of press. Uh, So a lot of journalists uh, have been beaten by the Taliban, have been arrested by the Taliban, and a lot of them are in a sense of fear and they do self-censorship every day. So I see a dark future for them. But... I expect that the situation change. I expect that the Taliban cannot rule Afghanistan like this uh, for a long time. Uh, if the situation continues like this, there will be a dark future. But uh, but if, as I expect, uh, there will be uh, there be some uh, change in the government, uh, so I think the situation will get better for the journalists and other people too. Thank you very much for your time and for sharing your story with us and we wish you the best. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Thank you. A very personal and harrowing account there by Shabir Ahmadi, the former deputy head of Tolo News in Afghanistan, telling us how he had to flee the country in the wake of the Taliban takeover. He was speaking there to my colleague Masa Aminolahi Zahedi. Let's hear now from one of our news editors, Kathy Milner, speaking to John Williams of Ireland's RTE, who has a long history of working in Afghanistan and has been playing an active role in connection with this crisis. Thanks, Emilio. John Williams, thank you for joining us. For the listeners, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I'm John Williams. I am the Managing Director of News and Current Affairs at the Irish public service media RTE in my day job, but I also uh, serve on the board of the Committee to Protect Journalists. John, prior to joining RTE, you were foreign editor with both BBC and ABC and spent quite a lot of time in Afghanistan when British forces were stationed there. Can you tell me a little about your experiences of the country at that time? From 2006 to 2015, when I was the foreign editor of ABC, I uh, went to Afghanistan 13 times. I would go twice a year. Once I would go with, when I was at the BBC, with one of the the British service chiefs to Helmand. And then once a year, I would go to uh, Kabul under my own steam to uh, see the team that we had based there. You know, Afghanistan is a place where relationships matter more than anywhere else I've ever been. And I was fortunate enough to be able to, for most of the time, have dinner with the same people over that decade. So I was able to follow Afghanistan's progress through, through their eyes. I think anybody who goes to Afghanistan ends up falling in love with it because, because of its people and because of the hospitality that they show. You know, I liken it to an abused child. And if anybody shows an abused child love, it is returned tenfold. 
Afghanistan is that abused child. And when you say relationships matter there perhaps more than anywhere else, what, what do you mean exactly by that? I was fortunate to spend time with the US commanders who were, were in Afghanistan. And you know, one of my constant refrains to them was every six months, uh, the British would send a, a new one-star general out to be the, the commander of what it called Task Force Helmand. And they would just about get to the stage of having a cup of tea with people when a new person arrived. By contrast, the BBC's Lise Doucette uh, has been going to Kabul since, well, before the Soviet withdrawal in 1988. She was there to witness that. And whether it's General Wardak, who was the, the previous defense minister, or indeed Hamid Karzai, she has known these people for more than 30 years. And there are many things that the military do very well. I happen to think they could take a few lessons from journalists in terms of the importance of relationships and you know, staying longer than simply making one cup of tea. Was that a contributory factor, do you think, in the, the, the level of surprise that there appeared to be among military intelligence and also the international community when the Taliban managed to, to make so many strides, uh, so many inroads so quickly and eventually took the entire country? Well, I, I don't know about 2021. What I do know is that if you don't have those relationships and you know, for understandable reasons, both Britain and America had built up large embassies in Kabul, but their diplomats were prohibited from leaving the perimeter of the compound. You're not going to actually find out very much simply by reading the wires. That's why journalists go out there and meet people. You know, in many ways, diplomacy and journalism are bedfellows. You know, they are two sides of the same coin. Diplomats are making relationships and reporting on private channels. Journalists are making relationships and reporting on public channels. But key to making relationships is meeting people, looking them in the eye, particularly in a place like Afghanistan, drinking tea with them. If you never leave the compound, it's hard to do that. Turning to your uh, work with the Committee to Protect Journalists, I mean, obviously, when things escalated, there were a lot of communications, I understand, received from thousands of journalists in uh, Afghanistan who really were desperate to leave. What sort of practical help were you able to give to those people? You know, th there were two main challenges for, this wasn't me, it was the, the CPJ's emergencies team who did a phenomenal job. But the first priority was to try to get people out, which was easier said than done, given that by the Monday evening, the Taliban had posted a, a roadblock in front of the airport gates. The second challenge was, once they were out, finding them somewhere to go, because Qatar, which was incredibly generous in helping people to get out, didn't really want to be minding people for an indefinite period. It was, a, it was only ever going to be a staging post. And you know, over the course of a number of weeks, having got people out, CPJ then worked to try to find homes for a number of these journalists. There was you know, a, a list of those most in need of urgent assistance that the CPJ was acting as a, uh, a liaison, really, between the US State Department, because clearly a number of these people had worked for US news organizations and so were eligible under what's called the, the P2 status of the US Refugee Resettlement Program, which requires security clearance that can take up to a year before they're allowed to resettle in the United States. And 
clearly there is no in-country processing of that security vetting now. So they needed a temporary berth before they went to, to the United States. Others just needed people to give them a home. And I have to say the Irish government has been extraordinary in terms of, of being generous and has currently taken more than a dozen journalists among those it has resettled and their families. How does that response compare to, say, other Western governments? How would you characterise the response of Western governments generally to this situation? Slow. And I think the thing that has defined the reason why Ireland's response has been impressive is it has been quick. And in part, it is the, the function of being a small independent state where lines of communication are short and decisions can be made quickly. There there are clearly still a lot of journalists who are inside Afghanistan. Some of them work for British news organisations. Some of them work for US news organisations. And while organisations like the New York Times, who who brought out over 100 people, did sterling work in not only their current staff, but their previous staff, I think media freedom and, and the development of Afghanistan's media is probably the jewel in the crown of Afghanistan's progress over the last 20 years. And I think we, the world owes it to them to look after them. You'll know, Cathy, there is this very Irish phrase about minding people. Well, we need to mind the journalists, not only those who are currently in Afghanistan, but those who are now here in Ireland. You know, I had dinner with one on, on Wednesday night. We need to help them continue to be journalists. There is no point in a journalist coming here and ending up driving a taxi. We have to ensure that they can continue to practice as journalists and to build a virtual network of sources inside Afghanistan so we know what's going on. Otherwise, it'll become North Korea and the world will be poorer for that. What can you actually do, though, in Afghanistan itself? What can you do to ensure that that progress is maintained, given some of the scenes we've seen recently with journalists being beaten by the Taliban, for example? I think it's very difficult, not least because the only thing we can do is, you know, more than a decade ago, um, I had a colleague who was kidnapped in Gaza. And uh, the night that Alan was kidnapped, the, uh, the head of the Metropolitan Police Kidnap Unit came to see me and talked about the spheres of influence that were needed to exert pressure to secure Alan's release. And it seems to me it's, it's a very similar scenario to the one that we have today. In that case, there were the kidnappers, there were the people around the kidnappers, and then the broader community. And, and the same is true with Afghanistan, that we, and I think Western governments, need to be able to put pressure on those who have influence with the Taliban, whether that is Pakistan or the Qataris or even organizations like the ICRC. The Taliban are going to, you know, and did rely on the ICRC in the late 90s and early 2000s to keep people alive in Afghanistan. In a way, the International Committee of the Red Cross ran the welfare services in Afghanistan and, and, and will have to do so again. And there will be a price that they can exact from the Taliban for that. Turning back to the uh, situation of the Afghan journalists who've come to Ireland, and you mentioned you had dinner with uh, one recently. What does the future hold for them? I mean, if, if they're not driving a taxi, can, can RTE, can other Irish media organisations, for example, help them? Well, I, I might say this, wouldn't I? There are never enough journalists, but there are plenty of journalists who can report from courts in Dublin or Cork. 
the journalists from Afghanistan who are here need to be helped to report on Afghanistan. Because if they don't, nobody will. John, should organisations like EBU be doing more to ensure the safety of Afghan journalists and indeed to safeguard press freedom there and globally? I think the last 18 months has been the EBU's finest hour, actually, in terms of the pandemic. And we have been united in terms of our approach to disinformation and stressing the importance and the value of public service media in regard to misinformation and the importance of protecting journalism on the front line. And I think we, as public service media, have a role in stressing the importance of of journalism in and from Afghanistan and putting pressure on member states of the EU and, and across Europe as a continent to actually provide a safe refuge for journalists from Afghanistan. Without them, we're not going to have any news from Afghanistan. And who knows what horrors might unfold? It's absolutely vital that the Taliban know that the world is watching and journalists are the eyes and the ears of the world. I do think it's important that an organisation that has values and and is committed to, to independent reporting that actually we do what we can to make sure that there are a home for those who are providing that independent reporting from Afghanistan. John, thank you for sharing your experiences with us and for joining us on the Eurovision News podcast. Thanks, everybody. Bye. That's just about all from us here at the Eurovision News podcast for now. In our next episode, we'll hear from Dorothée Olierique of France Television in Paris, who's been working regularly in Afghanistan for the last three decades. And we'll also hear from the New York-based Committee to Protect Journalists Communications Director, Gypsy Guillen Kaiser. This is Laurent Fratt, producer of the podcast. This episode was edited by Mark Stockwell, and our music is by Mickey Curling. We are interested in hearing your thoughts about today's episode. Tweet at EBU underscore HQ to join the conversation, and please consider subscribing to catch our next episode.